So last week we discussed higher thoughts. It was a, a more positive sermon. It was uh, t- thinking heavenward uh, and all of our thoughts, all of our attitudes, all of our actions, all the decisions that we made. Uh, we need to make them thinking of heaven, thinking of our eternal destination. Uh, and we, we had this quote that we kind of discussed a little bit too. And it says, you can only know what direction you are to go if you know the destination in which you were heading. We talked about, hey, if I just told you, hey, we're going to go on vacation and I just want to meet you there, you wouldn't know where you're going unless you knew what destination I gave you, right? And so all the decisions that we make need to be heavenward in orientation. We need to think about heaven as we make the decisions of our job, uh, our children, how we rear them, how we raise them, how we, how, what, what house we buy, what car we buy. All those things matter. This week we're coming to a more difficult section of Scripture. In fact, the next couple of weeks are going to be more difficult as far as the stuff we're talking about. This is the part of teaching expositionally that kind of puts me in hot water because if I, I teach book by book expositionally, so I get to difficult verses and i got to address them. And so we got to talk about them because if God thinks they're important for us to know, then obviously I need to preach it. And so when we're looking here, we're going to be talking about... Um, Last week, you can kind of imagine we were t- thinking heavenward, and we were thinking about this this nice, you know, this nice, beautiful open road. And as we make our decisions, uh, we we think about how nice that road looks, right? I mean, you don't see a lot of danger ahead. It looks like okay. So as we make our decisions, as we make our our rights and our lefts, and whichever way we need to go, that God directs us to, it looks like a pretty calm environment. It looks like you know we're able to make some pretty decent decisions. Decisions. The problem is sometimes life looks like the next picture. Uh, and sometimes it looks like that. And we have waves of temptation, waves of, of trials, things that just really start to hit our car as we, as we drive through those, hit our lives as we go through those. So when this happens, how do we continue to think heavenward? How do we continue not only to think higher, but to continue to think purely as we move through that? So join me as we read Colossians 3, 5, and 6. It'll be up here if you have your Bibles turn in them. Uh, turn to Colossians 3 with me. So verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let us pray. Uh, Lord God, I can think of, uh, of um, more positive verses than these two, Lord. I can think of, of easier message, messages to uh, preach than, these, than, the, than the scripture we have today. But God, I can't think of more relevant issues in our society today. So God, as, I, as, we, as we dig into this, as we kind of wade into some deep waters, as we, we get a little uncomfortable, as we talk about subjects that, that aren't always kosher to talk about in church, which is a problem. Uh, our churches need to be teaching on difficult things and talk, not just talking about the easy stuff, but we need to be talking about how hard life is and, and the sins that people struggle with and we need to be there for one another to help each other through these things. So God, as we get into this scripture, Lord, may you clear our hearts and minds of things that are worldly. And when we think of, of heavenward, I think heavenward at this point. And uh, Lord, God, help us to obey you, to learn from you, and may you change us from the inside out. Amen. So today we're going to discuss two reasons why we should have pure thinking and put to death impurity. So number one, believers in Christ should put to, put to death impurity because of God's command because of God's command. In verse 5 again, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There are very few ways to start a sentence off that, are, that is more intense than the way this verse starts off. 
put to death. Can anybody think of a good way to start a sentence off that would be more like, listen to this? You know, I mean, it is, I mean, put to death. I don't think we really start many sentences off like that. Put to death. You know, like, that's, that's a hard intro. Uh, and so, it's quite a statement. Uh, and, and there's no real wiggle room to that. It's like, put to death. Okay, uh, so how am I going to get out of this? Is there a way I can avoid that command? I don't think there really is there. Very blatant. And the Greek is actually one word that actually means this. And it means to cease completely, render dead, or consider as dead. So it's not even really like put to death. It's you, you should have already done this. Like this should already be dead in your lives as you are believers. And that's a, that's a tough one. If we look, so dead things, they don't act. They don't move. They don't live. You know, they're, they're, they're completely dead. And Paul's talking about completely killing sin in your life. The word biblical commentary on Colossians actually refers to the statement as a decisive act which is followed by a permanent attitude. I like this. So you make that decision and you follow it by a permanent attitude. It stays that way. This word, uh, the word the Puritans used for this idea of putting to death sin was, was a word called mortification. And, it, and that means to continue killing sin in your life. And John Owen, the great Puritan, once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a tough statement. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you in the mortification of sin. A good book by John Owen. The problem is when we, when we hear statements like that, when we think, okay, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, we, we're like, okay, I'm going to pull my bootstraps up. And we're going to work hard to beat this sin. We're going to win, right? And, and this humanistic pride comes up, and we're Americans. We can do anything because that's what we do. We can't. We can't kill sin by ourselves. So as you listen to this message, as you hear God's commands, realize that you can't actually do it, but God can in you. The Holy Spirit can kill sin in your life and sanctify you, make you more holy, and help you to walk the right life, the Christian life. So this, uh, John Owen actually went into this in that same book. He says, all other ways of mortification are vain. That's killing sin again, remember? Uh, all helps lead us helpless. I love that. All helps lead us up. That's world help. Self-help books, they leave you helpless because unless they have the Holy Spirit, they ain't helping you because you, you, you might be able to change your habit, all you're doing is going to give one vice for another. You can't make any real change in your life apart from the Holy Spirit really changing that. This, this help must be done by the Holy Spirit, right? We must actively take part in that, right? We, we have to obey, so there is an act of obedience that we need to do in this, but just realize that before Christ, we were slaves to sin, and without Christ, we are slaves to sin. And some will kind of object to this and says, hey man, last week you said we were born again, we're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, Right? Well, F.F. Bruce kind of says, hey, you know, Christians exist on two planes, right? We have, the, we have the, uh, the spiritual life, which belongs to the age to come. We are a part of the kingdom of God. If you are a born-again believer, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, you are born again. You have a new creation. But you know, we still have this flesh, and this flesh is still marred by sin. So we, we have two planes. We exist in two planes there. And the tension between the now and the not yet is normal for the believer, and we should feel that tension. We, we should feel that we're saved by grace, our salvation is sure, but there's just something still not right, right? There's still, there's still temptations and things that draw us into sin. And Jesus, you, have, you need to look no further than him, and Jesus in Matthew 20, 26, 41 looks at his disciples and says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. John MacArthur actually added to this and said the that we have a positional reality. So we are part of the kingdom of God. We have this positional reality that we live in, but it must be worked out 
through a believer's practical living. So it is a fact that you are a saved believer if you put your faith in Christ, but you still got to practically work that out. And I love he also called sin, he says, it's a deposed monarch, right? It's like a deposed king or, or queen. And this king or queen has no real power anymore. They're deposed. They've lost their authority. Death has lost its authority over you if you are in Christ. But you know what? There's still, there's going to be scrappy, right? Like you, you depose a market, uh, uh, you know, you depose a monarch and he's not completely put to death. What happens? He starts to work his way, trying to get back into power. And that's what it happens in your life. When sin's not killed, it works its way back into your life. And he continues to try to debilitate and devastate as much as he can in your life. And that's how the enemy works, the enemy of your soul, Satan himself. We've already moved into what we are to put, to put to death somewhat here. If we go to the verse here, it says, put to death what is earthly in you, right? So when, if you look at some versions, it'll say uh, earthly uh, in your members. You'll see uh, in, in your members of your body. And what, what we're actually talking about, we're not talking about the actual members of your body per se. We're talking about the flesh, the sin of the flesh, the sins that are not a part of your spirit, the things that are just come out of your flesh, the fleshly desires that you have. I want to make sure as we think about this that we, we put to death those sins, that the, the earthly members of your body, meaning the sins of the flesh, that we don't think about that literally. You know, usually the scripture is very literal, but we know literally in scripture that we are to care for our bodies, right? We're to glorify God with our bodies. We see in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Right, our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? We see Jesus talk about cutting your right hand off. Again, those are figurative statements. You need to take big steps to fight sin. Sometimes you need to cut off certain aspects of your life, certain places you go, certain things you do. We'll talk about that more in, in the future. But we're not to err on the side of the Gnostics who kind of said, oh, everything in the body's evil. Everything's bad. You know, right? The body's made, made by God. It's been marred by sin, but God still asks us to glorify himself through it and to sanctify it. So as we kind of go through that, we've, we, we come to five different sins that we need to put to death. This is where kind of the meat of the message comes from. So we talked about put to death, what is earthly, meaning put to death the sins of the flesh. And here are five sins of the flesh that he mentions, as we just saw here. And we're going to start with the first one, and it says put to death sexual immorality. Put to death sexual immorality. The Greek for this is actually pornea, which is where we get the word pornography. Uh, this particular Greek word first referred to prostitution, but then kind of went to any sexual act outside of marriage and kind of was any form of encounter that way. And I realize this is probably an uncomfortable thing to talk about in front of children. It's, in, it's uncomfortable to talk in front of adults, right? We don't like talking about things that are personal. But I'm sad to say it's likely not, not news for many of the kids here. I definitely know it's not news for the adults here and the young adults here, right? We live in the most sexual, sexualized culture since the Roman pagan, you know, pagan uh, religions. You know, I, I think we're trying to rival them in our culture today. According to the most recent divorce statistics, 55%, and actually I saw as high as 68% of marriages end in divorce because of infidelity. I mean, almost 70% of marriages end, end because of that. However, I think it's, it's commonplace to see this happen even in churches, which is sad. But I think most people in church would say, okay, I get it, you know, in the outside of marriage, Intercourse is a bad thing. You know, en encounters are a bad thing. We shouldn't do that. Most conservative evangelicals would amen that and say, yeah, that's right. However, I think that the biggest sin that we have to put, to put uh, the biggest uh, sin that needs to be put to death in our churches today is the second one here, put to death impurity. So this, the second sin that Paul mentions, put to death impurity, is it's the gateway sin. The next slide there. It, it, it's, it's our gateway sin to immorality. Impurity is... The Greek word means uncleanness. 
and it's sometimes used to refer to lustful intent. And although the first words where we get the, the word pornography from, this is actually probably more contemporary what we would mean when we say that. And purity here means thoughts that stain one's mind. It stains your flesh. It stains your mind. It has destructive power. And it's oftentimes a secret compartment of people's lives that nobody else sees. Obviously, people see immorality and, and infidelity a lot of times. And sometimes it can be secret, kept secret. But most of the time, it, it becomes, the light gets sh- shown on those a lot of times. But this is one of those things that doesn't always get the light shown. And if we look, I hope we realize how big of a deal this is. I'm going to give some quotes that, frankly, are staggering, and they really kind of rock my world as I saw this. So first off, we, most of us probably know that the pornography, the, the industry, is a billion-dollar industry in our nation. But what you don't know is that 28,258 people every second in the world are viewing pornography. 28,000. 258, that 25% of internet searches every day, 68 billion searches worldwide are related to pornography. I mean, one-fourth of Google searches. Just think about that, the amount of, of things that happen. We used to think this was a disorder limited to men, right? Oh, it's, it's a men's problem. They got a problem. Now, obviously, there's a bigger problem in men, and this is a big thing for them. But regular viewers of pornography, one-third are women. I mean, we are moving into a culture that is very dangerous, that is very, very dangerous. And sadly, like even people that try to set their boundaries, they're like, okay, I'm not going to click on that. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to avoid this. 34% of people have inadvertently been exposed to pornographic images online because of misdirected links, emails, different things, pop-ups, ads. I know that's a lot to, to sink in. I know that last thing, even with that 34% that inadvertently aren't even looking for it. They're not trying to go there and they go there. I want that just to sink in for a minute. I know it's difficult to take in. But brothers and sisters, our children need our protection. And, and I, I really want to take this first to start with the children and then to move on to us because we need protection as well. The average age that a child sees a porn- pornographic image is 11. Now they're actually saying maybe 8 or 9. That's the average age. So think about the, the development of the mind in that. We need to let them know that there's forgiveness for these things, right? And, and that there's redemption and that we need to teach them what true sexuality is, what, what biblical sexuality looks like. But that's the world we live in. No matter what safeguards you put, you can do everything that you can, but they still may end up seeing these images in our world today. We definitely want to communicate grace, hope, forgiveness. We want to work through, we want to have an open dialogue with our kids. We want to be able to talk saying, hey, there's dangerous stuff out there. I want to know if you see this. Let, let's talk about Let's work through it, and let's figure out how to keep that from happening, how to keep from being exposed to that. I know a lot of us as parents, we want to kind of put our head in the sand and be like, none of this ever happens to my kids, you know. But here's the thing. The number one, view, the n- the number one exposure to pornography is cell phones. And how many kids do you see in elementary school carrying around one of these bad boys? And how many parents think that they have safeguards on there, and they don't? If, you, if your kid has a cell phone, you better be the most tech-savvy person on planet Earth. And even then, they will figure out a way to get, to get to stuff. And so you need to not only set those safeguards. Those are great ideas. You need to have safeguards. You need to research this. You need to talk to young people. Find a millennial and say, how do you do this? Show me how to do it. Show me how to protect it. If you're a grandparent, you need to talk to your kids and say, hey, this is a big deal. Look, find a millennial. <laughs> yeah, if your kids are millennials, find one even younger. Because here's the thing: I don't, if you're a 28-year-old millennial versus being an 18, there's a big difference. Like there's these kids can really figure things out. We have to set safeguards. 
when practicing as a family physician, I used to see uh, a lot of pediatric patients too. And kind of track with me. We're going to kind of get practical here of what this looks like with your kids. So you wouldn't just hand your kids the keys to your car and say, here you go. Why don't you go just take my car for a spin, see what happens, right? Nobody in their right mind would do that because they're going to kill themselves or somebody else or they're going to wreck your car. It's going to turn out bad. I can't see that really going real well. They haven't been trained. They haven't been taught the rules of the road. They don't know the right away. They don't know what a stoplight maybe is. There's a lot of issues there, right? So what do we do when we when we train a child how to how to do this, right? When we train a child how to drive, they watch us for years. They learn what a stoplight is, what a stop sign is. Uh, they learn uh, you need to use your turn signal. So they pick up a lot of secondary things by just driving with us. Then they get to a certain age. They got to be big enough to reach the pedals. They got to be big enough to drive, right? Get to 15 maybe, and then you have to, they, have to, they, they have to study for a test. They learn the rules of the road. They learn the dangers out there. They learn what yield signs are and what caution signs are and what road work means and different things like that. And so then they take a test. And after that, we still don't give them the keys by themselves. We drive with them, right? We sit beside of them. We watch their every move. When they make a mistake, we say, hey, don't do that. Like, hit the brakes a little softer there. You know, do this. So we walk through them. And then finally, they take a test. And they have to pass that before they're able to drive on their own. Well, how come with the Internet, we don't do that? Okay, here, kids. You can type. Here you go. We give them, it's, it's about as crazy as giving them the keys to your car and expecting something bad not to happen. And although they may not, quote, unquote, kill somebody with their car by having the Internet, they can ruin their lives. And they can ruin the future lives of their family by addictions that they may start to have at these young ages. So we need to make sure that we, we protect our kids, that we watch them through this. But I don't want to make it all about kids, because here's the thing. Kids definitely need to be protected, and we need to be great parents in that and, and doing everything we can to protect them and to help them along. And also to keep that open dialogue, not just protecting them to thinking that it's never going to happen, protecting them, saying, hey, if it does happen, let's talk about it, and let's figure out how to keep it from happening again, and let's set another safeguard. Let's, let's put another guardrail, and let's make this safe. But what about us, right? Parents, these numbers are, are not just about kids. Parents, adults, the addiction to pornography is, is through the roof right now in our society. So I ended that analogy with kids. They had to t- pass a driver's test in order to get the keys to the car, right? And so when it comes to the Internet, they need to kind of work their way up to, getting, to gaining that trust. But it doesn't just stop there. You don't just hand them the keys and they drive the open road and there's no accountability. What's our accountability when we drive? Police officers, right? You can only go so fast because somebody's going to pull you over. You know, you cut somebody off, it might turn out bad for if a policeman sees you do that, it's reckless driving, right? We have accountability as adults on the road. We should have accountability as adults on the Internet. Each of us should have an accountability partner, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your friend, someone should be seeing everything that you see. Someone should have access to your emails at any point. Somebody should have access to your texts at any point that they want to pick that up. Not because of a lack of trust, but because to increase that trust. You know, when my wife picks up my cell phone, I'm not like, oh man, I hope she doesn't, you know, see this. And when I pick up her cell phone, I'm sure she's not saying, oh, I hope he doesn't see this. Or I log on to her email or she logs on to my email. We have to have our lives open. We have to have accountability. Just like when we're driving the road, we have to know, hey, man, if I hit, if I hit 85 and a 70, I'm going to get a pretty big ticket, right? We have to have that same, same idea and accountability with this, right? We must avoid impurity. We must avoid, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing you, right? We must pray that the Holy Spirit changes our impurity to purity, our uncleanness 
to clean us. And we, make take, we must take practical steps in order to make that happen. So if you don't have those things set up in your life, I pray that you do. I, I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's like, oh, man, you know, I feel like a little kid having somebody look over my shoulder. Man, you, know, you need to have that accountability. In our world today, you need to have it. So number three and four I've put together here. Put to death passion and put to death evil desire. Put to death passion and put to death evil desire. And I put these because they're very similar. So when we think of passion, sometimes in our culture, we actually think of passion in a good way. It's like, you know, this, you know, this person is passionate for this, and they work really hard, and they do good things. Well, this is a different type of passion. This is a passion for evil desires. If you want to kind of compare these two, you can kind of break it down this way. So passion is, is practically carrying out or acting out the evil desires' desires. Does that make sense? So passion is acting out what the evil desire already desires. We can learn a lot from these. If we want to see our actions change, then our desires must change. Our mind must change. We must be renewed. We must have a renewed mind. Instead of thinking of earthly things, of fleshly things, of the lust of the flesh, we must think of heavenward things. And we learn in Romans 12 that that only, only happens through the Holy Spirit who renews our mind and helps us to quit conforming to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That only happens through the Holy Spirit we need to be praying that God does that in us. And our prayer should be like the psalmist in 50, Psalm 51, 10, who said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And finally, put to death covetousness. That's a hard word to say, by the way. Finally, we get to the, the final five of these, and this one is probably the climax of them all. You know, we think of the other ones, they're more uncomfortable to talk about, but this is kind of the all-encompassing, I, I kind of call it the, the, the seed in which everything germinates. It all germinates from coveting. And it, it can also be translated greed. It's a term for always wanting more, never being content. It, it's no matter what you get, it's just not enough. It's the sin of Genesis 3. What man has everything. You know, we have Adam and Eve. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. There's no arthritis. Can I get an amen on that one? You know, nobody's got back pain. You know, everything's going really well. There's no relational discord. Uh, there's, there's, there's no no shame. There's no sin. And what is it? You can eat everything but that one tree. And what do they do? They, they, want, they want that tree. They're, they're, they're not satisfied with what God's given them. They're not satisfied with God himself. And, and coveting literally means that we don't feel God, like God is enough to satisfy us. That's the big issue, that, that he and his provision is not enough for us. We tell God that our husband or wife's not good enough. Our family isn't good enough. Our job's not good enough. Our house isn't good enough. Our car is not good enough. And, but most of all, even beyond all of those things, all the things he gives us, he is not good enough. He is not sufficient. And the root sin of coveting is idolatry. We're either placing ourselves or our desires or something else or someone else above God. And this idolatry is a, is a huge issue. So Paul, in, in the book of Ephesians 5 uh, chapter 5, verse 5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexual, immoral, and pure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, right? Compares those two, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, right? Of Christ and God. So are you an idolater? In this scripture, it says that you clearly have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Wow. That is tough. So don't misunderstand this. We all struggle with sins, and I want to make sure we, we experience that grace. We we, we see that, but are you seeking to mortify the sins of the flesh? Or are you just saying, I'm going to bow down to the, uh, the idols, the, the altar of the idols that I have? Impurity, immorality, greed. 
we should be like those that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6.11 here. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We should be able to talk about these sins as past sins, right? We, we've, been, we've been delivered from them. But here's the thing. We, we realize that there always is going to be a struggle. We, we, we realize in, in Romans 9 that, that we, sometimes we, we don't do what we want to do. I think it might be maybe Romans 7, 7 or 8 or 9, somewhere between there. Forgive me for that. But, but we, know, we know somewhere in there, Paul talks about he does what he doesn't want to do. And he doesn't do what he does want to do, right? And there's this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And we're going to be a part of that. Even if we are saved believers, you're going to struggle. And that's part of life. But his grace and his mercy is always there. So the real question we have to ask ourselves is, are we struggling with sin? You know, you're going to struggle with sin. If you're a believer, you, know, you hear that first statement, and if you're an idolater, you have no part of the kingdom of God. And that can be like, oh, man, am I even saved? Right? Well, the way you can answer that question is, are you struggling? You know, if you're not struggling, well, you need to answer that question with a question, am I saved? Like, that is that's a very legitimate question. If you can continue in habitual sin and not have any repentance, not, not feel anything, I'd love to talk to you because we need to deal with that. We need to talk about that. But you may have habitual sins that you beat for a, t- a time period and then you lose for a while, and then you beat for a time period and you lose for a while. And that doesn't excuse you. It's still sin. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be handled with guardrails, with the utmost of authority from God. He took, he had to take that on the cross, right? It's a big deal. A scripture that always struck with me, uh, it's always stuck with me when we're talking about tough issues like immorality, tough issues like lust, tough issues like pride, different sins. The author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Wow. Now you talk about a drop the mic type of verse. Like, yeah, you, you, you know, you've tried to fight your sin, but if you really try to fight it to the point where you're like Jesus, you know, as in his struggle, obviously he, he never sinned, but you see him and he's sweating blood because of the stress of what is about to happen, right? And he's going to, he, he fought hard, right? He fought Satan after 40 days and 40 nights with, with the word of God. Are we really resisting sin to that level? Like, like Christ did. Christ resisted all sin, never sin, knew no sin. That's a quite, quite a charge there. And obviously we know we're not supposed to self-mutilate our bodies, the, the Holy Spirit. So some people take that way, way too wrong, like too, too off the rails. But what it means is that you're to remove certain things in your life. And it may feel like you're bleeding. Oh, you know, man, I love this. This is what I'm all about. I really like this. You know what? I got to give that up. Sometimes we need to give up some of our favorite hobbies, things we li- places we like to go, certain movies that we really love that we man, we've had for years, and I love this movie, but every time I watch it, I think that. It, it leads me down the wrong path. Every time I listen to that music, oh man, it's just the way that that person sings. It gets my mind off. Maybe the words that they say, it's just getting me off the rails. This is not okay, right? As I say those things, certain things you may think about, you have to give up. Whatever the first thought that came into your mind thinking, I'm not giving that up, I love that, that's your idol. I'll just be straight. Wh- whatever you think about when you think about giving up certain things in your life, and you know what, they may cause you to sin, they may cause you to stumble, you know, whatever it is, if, if that's the one thing you won't give up, it's the one thing you need to. That, that one thing, I can't tell you how many times in my life that I've been like, Man, I could never give up that. And I love that music, or I love those movies, or I love this. 
And God says, you need to give it up. You know, and, and we have to be willing to mortify that sin, to cast off the, the chaff, cast off the idols, and he has to be enough. He always has to be enough. Christ is so much greater than the things of this earth. Mortify your sin. Put to death in purity because of God's command. Secondly, and lastly here, we see believers in Christ should put to death impurity because of God's condemnation. It's a tough verse. Colossians 3, 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Wow, that's tough. So I pray that God's command's enough for you to want to fight impurity, but if that's not enough, Paul says, hey, by the way, God's wrath is coming because of these sins, because of these issues. And the Greek word for wrath here is anger. And it's not a haphazard anger. It's an organized, calculated anger. God, God doesn't do things haphazardly. He doesn't just get mad and throw something. You know, he, he, he is calculated. And the reason he can be so calculated is because of Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, which says this, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not, not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And this is my bumper sticker I'm working on. He can declare because he is there. You like that? I need to, need to sell that. Yeah. Uh, he can declare because he's there, right? So he's, he's there, and you say, well, where, where is he? He's everywhere. Well, when is he? Well, he's every time. He's every place. He's everywhere. He's at, he's at the beginning. He's at the end. And so what he says, what he does is calculated because he knows it all. Nothing is beyond him. He is sovereign. He's in complete control. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. That is our God. Because of this, his wrath is poured out in an organized way. He's not surprised by the sins of man. He's not like, oh, okay, yeah, man never catches him off guard with his sin. But because of that, because of knowing God's omniscience and he knows everything, probably the scariest verse in the Bible to me is Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Man, that, that is probably the, the scariest verse. And if you've ever lived, listened to Jonathan Edwards preach on that, it is tough. Sinners in the hands of angry God. So God's wrath will be poured out upon unrepentant sinners. There is an eternal hell that is very real, and the wrath of God will fall upon sin. Idolaters, fornicators, there's tons of lists of things that we can look at. Drunkards, we look at all that. It, it will fall upon those who are not in Christ. It's not that, I know today you don't hear that very much. You don't hear pastors say there is a hell. You don't hear pastors say there's sin. And that's not a problem with the Bible. It's not a problem with God. God and the Bible have never changed. It's a problem with pastors. That we're not preaching the full counsel of God and the difficulties. Uh, we, don't, we don't preach these hard verses. Most people won't preach through the Bible like I am because you get to the, this and you've got to preach it, right? Or if they do, what they do is they just put all this together, mention a little blurb, and then move on, and they wouldn't talk about the hard thing. But yet, despite God's wrath, and we have, to, we have to really understand that he is a wrathful God too, he's also merciful and loving. And you have to preach both sides. You have to know that he is going to judge sin. But here's the thing. We know that the book of Isaiah teaches us this, that judgment is his strange deed. We see in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, 21, For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Judgment isn't what he wants to do, it's what he has to do because he is a good God. If we look in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, 23, he says this, Have I any pleasure 
and the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So we see that he takes no pleasure on pouring out his wrath on the wicked. He would rather that they turn from their evil ways and be forgiven, right? A good God must punish sin. And God would not be good if he, did, if he allowed sin to continue. Just as if we had a judge and they let criminals go off without any punishment at all and said, oh, it's fine that you murdered that person. Just go and do whatever you want to. That we would call them a bad judge, right? Well, God is the same. He, he would be a bad God if he didn't punish sinners. But praise God, that isn't the end of the story. That isn't the end of the story. So God offered us a way out of his wrath, right, through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, and took on our sin. The wrath of God was placed upon his son for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Now he's at the right hand of the Father, as we talked about in growth group multiple times there. 1 Peter 2, 24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here, by his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved. He took the death that was reserved for us. The wrath of God that we talked about that's coming, uh, the hell that will come for people, it's been paid for. You just have to accept that free gift. And I pray that you have. I pray that everyone here has, has had the, the wrath of God applied to Jesus Christ, that, that he paid that penalty for them, that substitutionary death, atonement, and that now you are free, free indeed, right? He is the only way. As we come to a close, we should put to death impurity because of God's command and because of God's condemnation that's to come. In fact, if we may add a third, it's because of God's consummation. And that word consummation means to complete, to make complete. So God offers us abundant life, a complete life. And we should live that abundant and complete life in Christ. First off, I pray that if you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you about that. If you're questioning that, you're thinking, oh man, you know, I really, I don't know if I really am repentant of my sins, then I, I'd love to talk to you about that. If this message just kind of made you question your salvation, let, let's talk about it and work through it. But if you have, I pray that, that you just kind of take a step back and you examine your life honestly. Uh, am I really attempting to mortify sin in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit? Am I trying to do it by myself and failing? Well, that's a problem. You, you need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Am I trying at all? Am I really just kind of giving in? Am I just kind of living this life how I want to live it? Friends, today is the day to take a, take a stand and repent and say no more. Stand firm in Christ and set boundaries. Get accountability. Set guardrails. Set boundaries in your life. Get rid of stuff. Do some cleaning house this evening, this afternoon. Throw things away. Get rid of it. Certain movies that seem to lead you down the wrong direction. Certain music that seems to lead you down the wrong direction. Throw it away. Get rid of it. It will be so liberating, so freeing to do that. Paul in Romans 6.14 says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. For sin will have no dominion over you. Brothers and sisters, does sin have dominion over you in your life? Are you allowing the shackles around your arms and your legs to stay there? Or are you saying, hey, Christ, please remove these. I am free. I have been liberated. I am free indeed, right? He who the Son has set free is free indeed. Are you living in that freedom, in that abundant life? 
Or are you being choked by the lust of the flesh and the cares of this world? I pray that if you are, that today be that day that you take a stand and say no more. No more. Not because you're going to be able to take that stand, but you stand up and say, because of Christ, he has set me free. He has released me from this. I don't have to go there anymore. And I'm going to take practical steps to keep from going to that place again. Let us pray.